Welcome to That One Record. I'm your host, Kyle Cliche, and today we're sitting down with Tom May, Greg Barnett, and Joe Godino of the band The Menzingers to talk about their 2012 breakthrough album on The Impossible Past. This one's a big one, not only the scope of the episode, having uh, three band members kind of talk through what they remember at the time, but also in terms of if if this is your genre, if you if you go to the fest, if you're into to punk, if you're into you know some call it pop punk, whatever, this is a big band. This is one of the biggest right now, and this is the record that started all of that. It's the one where everything sort of took off after. You know, Chamberlain Waits comes out and they're they're getting great support slots. They're, they're opening these phenomenal tours, but On the Impossible Pass comes out and suddenly this is a headliner in every medium-sized club, basically in North America. And it does not let up, even to this day. This is a special band, not only one of my personal favorites, but also four of some of my favorite people I've ever gotten to meet uh, through playing music. It's, it's so rare that you get a band like this that has the same four original members uh, who have toured this hard and this long and sacrificed so much of a normal life to pull this off. Very reminiscent of the Flatliners who we covered on a on a previous episode. On the Impossible Pass is just such a huge step up. Uh, the songwriting takes a step forward. The, the size of the tours and rooms they're filling takes a step. Uh, they're on Epitaph now, basically the biggest indie punk label you could hope to be on. And they're sustaining themselves off of a band for the first time since they've started. Needless to say, the good comes with the bad, uh, and and we hear about that in this in this interview. You know, the what it takes psychologically to to keep churning out records, to have what some would consider a hit or a classic record in your discography. How do you follow it up? Uh, how do you, a couple records down the line, look back on that time? Uh, what did you change? What did you learn about yourself going from, you know, touring a couple months a year to, oh, man, this is my job now. And if I'm going to keep doing this, uh, I'm going to need to change some things. And who are the bands along the way that help you do that? So I hope you're as excited as I am to deep dive into this. There's a bunch of great insight here. Everyone's got some great stories, and I feel like enough time has passed, nearly 10 years now, uh, where you get some real introspection from everybody on on what exactly this record did for them and continues to do for this band. So let's jump right in, uh, where they're just starting to decide, hey, it's time to follow up Chamberlain Waits, and we need a new record. Chamberlain Waits has kind of come out, and you're beginning either probably the writing process for uh on the impossible past now my main thing is when you have two songwriters like you and greg split pretty much almost every album how do you guys how does it work out for for songwriting are you bringing in a skeleton on your own or are, are you jamming together and figuring these things out yeah, so the majority of the songs, it, it's changed every record, uh, but it's been basically similar each time. Um, we So the writing on the Impossible Pass was different in this regard a little bit. But what we would do is bring skeletons. Greg, I'd bring like a, a – sometimes we would just bring a part, like maybe a chorus or a verse. 
uh, or a fleshed out acoustic song that, or, you know, we would practice on our electrics and kind of come into practice and be like, Hey, this is what we got. This is what we're working on. And then the four of us would work, uh, from beginning to end or from middle out, like that kind of way to, to jam it. Mostly it was, we would just jam and we still did this in the last record. We just jam in a room for hours and hours and hours and hours and kind of finesse the songs and try to get them to, to, to work for us. Um, yeah, it's definitely very much a collaborative effort. We've written so many songs over the years where like, it'll just start with all of us just blindly jamming on something. And then Greg or Tom might go like, Oh, I have this verse or this melody or this chorus that maybe would sound good over this. So then we'll piece it together. So sometimes it's really just picking up scraps, you know, and all putting them together. Um, it could start with a drum beat. It could start with a bass line. It could start with a guitar or whatever. But, um, you know, it, it, it does happen a lot where like Greg or Tom will just send a demo over and it'll be a fully, you know, fully compiled, uh, acoustic song basically. And then we'll just work off that. So it is kind of all over the place in that, in that sense. Have you guys ever had a song where like you've written the lyrics and Greg sung or, or Greg sung and you've written the lyrics or does it pretty much stick to whoever wrote it? There's a couple of them. Yeah. There's a couple of them. I think, uh, so, um, I was born, I believe I wrote the core. Actually, it's funny about that record on Chamberlain Waits is that, uh, Greg wrote the chorus for who's your partner, which is the first song. Uh, and I wrote the verses and I think that the second song is I was born. Uh, it is. And then I had written the chorus for that song and Greg wrote all the verses and we had, mushed it together and made that. And so there definitely was several parts where we would do that. And there's sometimes like, uh, you know, Joe and Eric would chime in with what would be like, Hey, we should do a gang vocal part here. It would be really cool if you, you know, wrote a chorus for this or like, here's this chord progression. Um, and even up to the newest record the, on the song Portland, Greg wrote the chorus for Portland while we were trying to, I had a different chorus and then we changed it like seriously, like the day before we recorded it or two days before I recorded the vocals for it. Um, and yeah, so that, that still goes on to this day. And there's a whole lot of, on this newest record, it was interesting because we had all of our, we went on in-ears um, a couple of years ago, which is basically, if anybody listening doesn't know what that is, you, um, each single microphone that's on the stage that goes out into the PA system is first routed to a different mixer that goes into our ears. So normally those speakers are to the front of the stage or monitors, they're blasting like your vocals or whatever you want on them. But this time we had these ear, ear, um, speakers that are molded into the inside of our ears, you know, our ear, uh, earbuds or whatever. And we choose our own mix. So we took all that equipment and set it up in our practice space, this writing time. And it was the first time that we were writing, we could actually completely hear what every single person was doing the entire time. And then at the end of every day, we would record what we had written, go home, sit on it, come back in the next day and work on it. So that was like, uh, that was a new, a whole new use of equipment that we had never done before, which was super interesting. Now, thinking back to On the Impossible Pass, did you do pre-production for this album? Yeah, so we did a little bit of pre-production, but not really. So uh, Matt Allison, who recorded it, uh, was, was super helpful in helping us get tones, of course, and also kind of structure some parts that didn't seem like they were going to work as we were recording them. And he also helped us finesse some vocal parts. Uh, but we kind of did a lot of re-recording uh, or making decisions and re-recording what we had kind of written beforehand when we went in to do that record, um, as opposed to the, the stereotypical kind of pre-production. We actually spent a lot of time recording the stuff to like, I forget which recorder we used, but it was a lot of just live recordings in the room and not multi-track recording that we would we recorded uh, and then would listen back to uh, the next day. Or And a lot of it just kind of lived in our heads um, before we got there. So there wasn't uh, a really good pre-production for it. 
around this time, so this is the on the impossible past is the perfect album for this podcast, really, because it is the pivotal album in our career where everything changed. We went from being just kind of a local band, you know, playing, we would drive to Jersey and play shows, you know, maybe like we did some touring with Chamberlain Waits, but it wasn't really a like, you know, a long touring, long form touring. We were just kind of like doing weak stuff and we got a couple big offers, but everything kind of really changed around after, um, on the impossible past. And one, we were really broke. So we would, all, we all lived in the same house together and we practiced in our basement in Philadelphia. Um, it came to a point where we couldn't do that anymore. We were just too loud and we were, we were playing down there. We wrote Chamberlain Waits and um, Hold On Dodge in our basement. But then by the time writing On the Impossible Pass came around, our neighbors were just like, this is over. You know, <laughs> we, were, we were nice enough uh, for you guys, but we can't do this anymore. So it became a huge problem because we were able to write a couple songs down there. Now we didn't have a space. Um, so we started kind of just hopping around Philly to our friends' places. Our friends would be like, hey, I just moved to, you know, this part of the city. We're, we've been jamming down here. You guys can use it for a couple of days. And um, it was really hard because we knew that we needed we needed to get away from the lifestyle that we were living in Philly and not having a place where we can just go create all the time. Um, but we didn't really have that. So um, the house that I grew up in is in Lake Ariel, Pennsylvania. It's, you know, in the Poconos. And uh, I I kind of just said to the band, I was like, hey, you want to take over the basement um, of, you know, my parents' house? And my brother's living there. And Tom's brother, actually, it was funny, that summer, he was living there, too. Um, they, the two of them worked on a golf course together. So like in between college stuff. So they were living there. Um, we kicked my mom out. My mom moved in with my grandparents for like three weeks and all of us just took over the house. And, uh, it was, it was so fun. It was awesome. Um, and we really, it was what we needed because we really did finish the album there. We finished like, you know, the, there's such a, um, a cohesive theme to that album. And it was really conceived, while we were all together in that house and uh, jamming every day. But the, you know, the double-edged sword of it is, is that, you know, we are now up in the woods um, the, with the four of us, my brother and Tom's brother, and my, my childhood high school friends all around. So we, you know, we would just get into trouble every night, you know, we would go out drinking all night long. And like, all of a sudden, we were sleeping through the days. And like this whole idea of we're in a place just to write music, we'd be like, hey, come on, uh, um, Chris is going to take us out on the boat today. So like, let's get the song wrapped up. You know, so it wasn't as like, we thought it would be the place to get rid of our distractions, but there was arguably more distractions there. Um, but in a way it kind of added to the whole experience and it was, um, yeah, it was really, really fun. I think we were there for two weeks or three weeks. And the pre-pro that we did for on the impossible pass is actually kind of one of the more, um, charming parts about the entire thing was that we, had started working on an acoustic record for Red Scare in our kitchen in South Philly on Mountain Street. And we had one of those hardware recorders set up, uh, like a Fostex, maybe 8, 10, 12 track kind of uh, digital recorder in the kitchen. And we, Toby sent us like 300 bucks or something for the, to, to, as like an advance to start working on this. Um, I don't know what the amount was. I don't remember. It was, it, you know, but we spent it all on weed and pizza and beer. And we just sat in the kitchen and recorded 
all of these demos or we were, we were recording the, the acoustic record. And what we ended up doing with that acoustic record was sending it. Uh, we started working with Tim Zahotsky, our manager, or still our manager, one of our best friends, one of my best friends. We, uh, he sent those to Epitaph and Epitaph used those and that's what they wanted to sign us with. So that also, those recordings, those same ones ended up becoming on the possible pass, which is an yeah. acoustic record that we released after. Yeah, he's got it right yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. So, and at this point, you're doing pre-production for this album. This isn't pre-production to shop it. You're already with Epitaph at this point? Yeah, that's correct. So, we signed um, we signed to Epitaph around March of 2011. Um, we, they, they, they flew us out there. They were interested in the band, um, and... Basically, they wanted to sign us, and we were just we would sign anything at that point. You know, if it was a the worst record contract in the world, it was that was our dream label to be on. Um, so whatever it was, we were signing. But they offered to fly us out to Los Angeles and um, you know kind of wine and dine us to show us the label and meet everybody and see if it was a good fit, which was just such a joke for us because we were like, now we get a free vacation out of it. So <laughs> I was finishing up my um, my last semester of college then. And we flew during my spring break, which was pretty funny to think about. And yeah, we flew out there, uh, met everybody, and then signed the contract. So now, now we're signed. We have an album deal, and um, we were writing. We were writing on the impossible past then. But after we signed, that's when the writing was really kicked into high gear. And uh, yeah, it was finished up over that summer of uh, 2011. But I don't remember a lot of the specifics. I just remember that, and I remember like flying out there and and they they put us up in this like hotel uh that had like a pool and stuff and we got to go to the office and they had like a barbecue for us and we like sat outside and like drank beers with brett and all the people that worked there uh brett gerowitz and and yeah it was just like you know pretty surreal you know like we we hadn't really we we had toured a, a bit but like well quite a bit at that time but still you know it wasn't it was crazy that like a label wanted to like fly you out somewhere and like do that whole kind of thing. Cause that's the kind of stuff you just like for us, like you just hear about and read about, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to have like that kind of stuff happen to you. And um, yeah. And, and it was, that was it. We met them and they were like the coolest people. So we were like, hell yeah, we're, we're doing this. Like we, there was really no question from what I remember anyway. It was just like, this label's amazing and everybody's cool. So. Do you do like a, a multi-record dealer with them? Like Sidekicks we're talking about, it, it's a multi-record deal, but they kind of go record to record so long as everyone's everyone's in? Or was it just, hey, let's put out one record and talk after that? Yeah, we had a multi-record deal. Um, I, uh, I believe it was two records with an option as the third, uh, an option to re-sign, an option to put on the record. And we, yeah, we, we had a multi-record deal with them that uh, the advances, like they stagger they get bigger based off of how many of the previous records sold. So we were looking at this scale and we're like, Oh my God, this is fucking Epitaph is signing us. It's so cool. You hook up with Epitaph, uh, but you go back to Matt Allison for this. You had done Chamberlain weights and you go back to Chicago again. You do this LP again. Did they, did they put kind of any uh, names forward or, or ask for any input on where, or who you were working with on the album or were they just like, yep, go for it. Uh, I can't remember the uh, conversation so vividly, but they did throw a couple names forward. Some of the bigger um, producers, I think they talked about going to Blasting Room um, and stuff like that. 
But we wanted to go with Matt Allison. We'd worked with him on the record before that. We were super excited to work with him again, and I'm so glad we did. It was it was it was awesome. Yeah, it was a 100% no-brainer for us. It wasn't even I don't even remember having a conversation of working with someone else. We were so so happy and excited after Chamberlain Waits how the album came out. Matt was such a friend of ours and a trusted friend. We just knew that like we had this album that we were really proud of and it was really personal and we couldn't go to somebody else for the first time. It, it just ha- we it had to be Matt. And, um, you know, thankfully he was open and he was really, really excited about the project and the songs. Um, but yeah, so going, going in with Matt was, we were just so excited about it. And what do you, what did you, now that you've worked with a couple different producers, that process, how, how Matt runs the show, how he does things, what, what do you, what do you still look back on fondly from those times? Matt was just, he's just really inspiring. Like his, his friendship was so inspiring where, um, he's could just be so laid back, but he can really get you to get to get out in a, in a way like what you're saying. Um, there's a great, one of my favorite memories of, um, recording on the impossible past was doing gates. And, um, I, I had so there's a there's a line that became it's probably my favorite Menzinger's line and it's crazy how this came up. So I was I was singing it to him and I was in the live room and we were kind of working through it and I said so right now I end the line before I go into the chorus but I feel like there should be more words and I kind of want to just play that off of you and see how you how you feel about it and it was I used to say when you get old enough to know and that's it you know, when you get old enough to know, <laughs> and it would like the drums would kind of just play through. Um, and I, I kind of was just like, I need to finish something. So you we were kind of helping me with, with lyrics and we were talking about what the song's about. And then I just, it just literally came off the top of my head when I was, when I said like that happiness is just a moment. And he just like stopped and he's like, there it is, you know? <laughs> so it was just like that, that comfort. And I was like, that's exactly what I wanted. You know, that that's what, that's the lyric that I was hoping for. Um, happiness is just a moment. And, uh, you know, just being comfortable with somebody and being allowed to be vulnerable, um, you know, is, is challenging, but I, you know, just had such a, had such a, a great connection with Matt and a friendship that he was, you know, was able to get cool stuff out of us like that. And, um, you know, uh, you know, he always just kind of felt like, a older uncle or something, you know, he always said he did all these amazing records that we loved and like, you know, he's, he's older than us. So it was cool to kind of like look up to him in that sense. And, um, you know, try to almost kind of almost try to impress him, you know, cause he's done so many cool albums. You're like, all right, let's, we want to, we want to be one of those cool bands too. Now <laughs> at this time you're, you're signed with epitaph, you're doing this pre-production, um, in your head as one of the primary songwriters, how much of, of kind of a conception do you have of this album? Like, do you, when do you get the album title, the artwork, kind of the, the stuff that you build around the songs kind of ironed out? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because being one of four members, you know, we're a very, very democratic band. So when you're, when you're doing concepts and themes, um, you know, it's, it's challenging. Uh, sometimes you, you have an idea and somebody has another, another idea. Um, I, we didn't pick us an album title till when we were in the studio. Uh, we recorded in, in fall in, in se- September of 2011. Um, but in the back of my mind, 
I I didn't pro approach the band with this title yet because I I didn't think that they would go for it. I kind of wanted them to you know, be excited. And then we all magically fall upon it. I didn't want to pitch, you know, <laughs> it's yeah, like hard yeah. to sometimes when you're doing that kind of like that mental gymnastics of being like, I want them to love this as much as I love this, this title, but I feel like if I approach it at the wrong time, they're going to be turned off and they're going to want to go in a different direction. So <laughs> the, around the time that we're doing this pre-production thing I had on the impossible past, um, I thought it was the perfect song to uh, album title. I thought that it just summed up a lot of these songs, but I thought that it was so different from things that we've named in the past. And I just didn't know if everybody would go for it. Um, turns out it was totally in my head and everybody was stoked on it, <laughs> but I just had it in my head being like, ah, you know, we, we usually, I just don't, I can't see it. I don't know. I think it's going to be too artsy or some shit, you know, they're not going to like it. But, um, I thought that, we we that's when we wrote i thought it would be cool to write a transition song um that that led into nice things and that was the the title track on the impossible past and it was almost like a little trick where i was like i wonder if i can say that this is the name of the song that they'd be like oh that that'll be a cool album title you know <laughs> uh trying so to inception it, it, this album title yeah, I was like, I was pretty gung ho. I was like, this is really good, but it's it's from this book, and like, you guys didn't read it, and I don't know if you fucking like it. Like it, I was like, oh man, I don't want to bum anybody out, and you don't want to push for something that you believe in if no one else is excited. You know, you, yeah. you want everybody to be really, really pumped. So we named the song that, and then it kind of had the in. <laughs> so then when we started recording in September, we were throwing around titles, and I threw and. You know, I said, how about that? And I think it was just immediate. Everybody was just like, oh, fuck, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So it, it totally ruled that, uh, you know, everybody was as pumped as I was on it. The whole quote, like from Lolita, I was weeping again, drunk on the impossible past. Seemed like mm -hmm. that's that just that sounds like almost a Menzinger's mission statement at this point. Yeah, when I was when I when I read that line, the book absolutely changed my life when I when I read it for the first time. I mean, it inspired, it changed my writing when I started reading uh, Nabokov, and that one, that book in particular, was the first um, novel ever I re ever read by him, and it just changed. It really just changed everything. I, I just kind of saw, you know, I, I all of a sudden I became really interested in. Um, Lyrics. I've always been interested in lyrics, but I became more hyper focused on them um, after after reading um, Nabokov for the first time. And that th when I saw that line in the book, I I like I, I like stopped. I was like, it just felt like I wrote it. You know, it was <laughs> yeah, so yeah. relatable. It was so perfect. I wrote it in a notebook immediately. I thought about it all the time. That's why I was like so gung ho about this this album title because it just felt so so right and the whole the whole thing like spaced out like that i was weeping again drunk on the impossible past just feels like you know this it just summed up this album so much of telling these really personal stories that you know you've been kind of holding in for a long time yeah nabokov pops up a bunch is it is it gates that has some more nabokov references um Obit obituaries. obituaries uh, yes, yeah, yeah. There's there's tons. I've stolen so <laughs> yeah. much, so much. Yeah, Toy Soldier does. I'm, I'm trying to go through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so um, from Pale Fire is in, in obituaries. Um, yes. But there's yeah, probably okay. some more Lolita stuff. That was kind of that. I mean, that theme kind of came up, and I think that like when I, when you look at the lyrics, it's such a it's an album of like reconciling your past. Um, and 
there's a joke that me and Tom say that like every song me and him start off with like I remember, you know, like <laughs> I remember is, is like is the key lyric born, in the whole I album. Remember, yeah, 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 like uh, he starts off Sculptors and Vandals, I remember, and then um, Sun Hotel, I remember. You know, there's just like yeah. a lot of this kind of like um, looking back kind of stuff, and um, yeah, I just thought that that song that that title just helped sum everything up, especially with this transition track that we were going to add to the album. Um, so that kind of became a theme. The, the artwork was extremely, extremely challenging for us. Um, we were now working with a big label and we didn't really fully understand. We were always really bad at artwork. We just never really had ideas. And uh, we, we were lucky in the past that we were able to pull them off, but we didn't have a clear vision of, of what we wanted. Um, and we were like asking Epitaph, but you know, the way it works really is that they kind of, they give you the control to figure it out. So we're like, I don't know, what should we do? And they're like, well, what do you want to do? We're like, well, we don't know. It's like, well, you got to find out, <laughs> you know? So that we, we were kind of, um, it was difficult for us with the, with the artwork end, but, um, you know, we started, we started going through photos. Damn it. Now you gotta, you gotta cut the, you gotta cut this. Cause I forget the guy's name. Maybe Tom said it. Mark Cohen. Uh, Mark Cohen. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we stumble upon his artwork and we just kind of all with his photographs and we kind of all fall in love with it. And that photograph just really hit us, hit us. Like we thought that it was, um, you know, it just, it just felt like it summed up the story. Like the person that these songs were about was, uh, you know, being hit with hearing them for the first time or something like that. Uh, that's how I've kind of always felt about it of just, this shocking, you know, this woman kind of shocked, but then it also looks like she's, you know, um, happy, you know, she's got the ring and you can't really tell if she's flattered or if she's startled by it. And I, I think that there, there's something about that of an album that's so lyrically brutally honest and it just feels like you're, you're sharing it with people. And that's kind of the, the photograph just really spoke to us about with, with that connection. So I, I went on, I remember when this came out because the, the pre-order shirt came with the, the picture of the woman on the album cover as well. And then I remember getting it and Googling him and there's some, there's some pretty wild like documentaries and like, like specifically there's a documentary of him in action kind of taking his photos and it's like pretty jarring now to watch him do. I don't know if you've ever seen him operate. I've not. I should, I gotta watch it. It's like he he just takes his camera and a flash, and he's literally like, uh, and he talks about it. He's like, he's purposely invading just people on the streets' space. Like he gets really yeah. really close, and he he flashes it like right in their eyes, and he just keeps walking, and he just cruises to the <laughs> next one, and he's you know sometimes he'll get you'll see him like getting ready to go, and then someone will move, and he'll stop, and he'll wait. And the person like go to take another drag on this, and he jumps in and just goes in. But it's, <laughs> where did you where did you first come across this photograph then? Yeah, so it's funny uh, also to hear that because of the way that street photography ethics have changed since oh, then. Oh, big clearly. time! That's what I was and thinking I, about I was, watching it. Yeah, and I got super into photography um, the last two years, and that's been something that I've learned a lot more about. And uh, my own personal approach has changed drastically after talking to other photographers and talking to people and learning stuff. That's a whole nother uh, can of worms for sure. Well, not necessarily a can of worms, but a whole nother discussion. But the, uh, 
So that photographer was found by, I believe, one of the art directors at Epitaph were just sending us lots of different photographers that we wanted to use. We said, we kind of didn't really give them much to work with. They're like, what do you want to do? What are we going to work on? We were like, yeah, we really want an iconic photograph (laughs) or something like that. So they sent us a bunch of different ones. And I believe that that was uh, who found um, this photographer. But this uh, photo in particular was one that we boiled it down to because of a couple of factors. She's clearly either surprised or shocked, like, you know, if that was that guy's style all the time to get her picture taken, which at the time we didn't, you know, we didn't know that or understand that. But it just seemed like somebody from Scranton uh, and the focal point of the photograph is definitely the uh, engagement ring um, for us. So it was kind of like a young person from Scranton. It could have been any of our aunts or our moms or it could have been you if you're looking at it. And uh, it, it was just like the whole like kind of shocked nature of it and kind of just like remembering that moment. And it's kind of leaves her face out, uh, which is allows it to be as anonymous and as, um, you know, uh, projecting your own self onto it. And we just thought it was really powerful and interesting and, and, and ran with it. Artwork has always been important to me for albums because it really matters. You know, when you when you think of an album, and it, you can't help but think of the artwork and it creates the whole mood of the album. You know, if if like Ren and World had a bright yellow background on it, like probably wouldn't even think of the, the songs that are the same or like if that goes for any album you can name by any band. But um, so I always think it's really important, um, but I've always it's always been hard for me. It's kind of always been a struggle for me to um, explain uh, that kind of stuff, like artwork. I, I don't have the best, um, you know, like maybe it's vocabulary or just whatever to explain my, uh, my ideas in like an art artistic way. So I'm, I've always been kind of visual. Like we have like four things laid out there. Like I can totally just pick what I like the most and then explain why. But in terms of starting from scratch, it's like, it's, it's hard. Artwork has always been a tough thing for all of us to come to uh, consensus on just because it's, um, everybody's kind of got a different feel of what they're, you know, we can write songs and just, it's super fluid. But then when we, we try to do that, it's, it's, it's hard to uh, sometimes get your ideas across, I guess. And that's kind of in my struggle. Um, but that being said, you know, it's still very communal um, and we're all just as much in the conversation. Um, but there are certain things that I don't hold as like, I'm not going to like put up a fight for something if I really don't care between A, B or C. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, sometimes I'm just like, honestly, guys, either way sounds fucking good to me. You know, like. You know, we already wrote the songs. That kind of stuff comes later, but it is an important factor, and it does have a discussion. But you know, awesome. When uh, when you were coming into this record, uh, did you know kind of what you guys had like, or did you have any songs specifically that maybe you were either really high on or or kind of low on that after the process was done, they they surprised you either way? When we recorded the title track on the impossible. I didn't know what we were going to do for that. So when I went in and recorded some riffs backwards and then we flipped them, that was really fun. And the effects that we put on the um, guitars and Greg's vocals, super haunting and, and you know, really hits you. And that was a, a one that we didn't really know what we were going to do when we got there. And that was the first time we kind of built it with what we would consider to be studio magic. And that was one that really stood out to me for that. And also the drums for um, 
Freedom Bridge we had solidified and kind of really worked out in the studio there. And they sounded so fucking big in the studio monitors that we were just, I mean, I remember being completely blown away when we had gotten there. It was so cool. Yeah, I, I would say one of the most surprising ones that came around in the studio was Mexican guitars. Um, it was always a, it was always a favorite when we when we jammed on it live, but if you break it down on paper, it it, it doesn't really make sense. There's no chorus. The parts are all like you're kind of never really know where you're in the song. You know, there's like a breakdown in the middle of it. There's like two verses up front. Like what is the chorus? You know, um, but I think that's the magic of the song, and um, that's one of those songs that I, I look back on that. I don't think we would be able to write today because we would be maybe a little too clinical with our songwriting of, be, of being like, look, look through the parts. Do we have good parts here? Then it was just let, what feels right. And, uh, you know, let's just let's just play whatever, whatever we're feeling. And that song in particular, I think, sums up that style of songwriting for us, probably in, in its best form. Um, but I, I I really loved the song when we were writing it, um, but I was a bit concerned being like, maybe this isn't as good as, as I, I'm hoping. But when we got in the studio, it really started to turn around and you hear you started hearing, you know, you start hearing everything under a microscope. You know, Tom's guitar riffs were just so good. Um, I I loved the the dynamics where we would fall into the verses and everything. Um, so that song really came around. And it's funny when we were recording it. We actually recorded it like a hair too slow and I was very, very like kind of panicked about it because it just felt it felt too slow. It was draggy. So I could be completely wrong here, but I'm like ninety nine point nine percent sure about this, that the, the entire song is sped up like a BPM, you know, over. So if you like go to try to, you know, like, it, you know, it, I don't you know what I'm saying. It's like. The whole, yeah, every single part of it was just sped up overall, which is pretty awesome. I'm pretty sure that um, uh, Bruce Springsteen's, um, what's his, what's the massive one that he did? He did the same thing where at the end they were just like, oh shit, it's too slow. All right, speed it up, speed the whole thing up a little bit. Um, oh, Hungry Heart. Yeah, yeah. I think Hungry Heart is pumped up like a couple of BPMs like from the initial tracking. But uh, yeah, that just all of a sudden the life kind of it, it just took on a life of its own after that. Um, the BPMs were kind of sped up a bit. And uh, yeah, that was a good one. One thing I will say is that we've always been the kind of band that like we hammer the songs to death before we get in the studio. So like we're like so done with the song like we're like 130 percent ready to record this song and and so in terms of like being surprised after the fact after it's recorded i wouldn't say that that's the case a lot maybe more so recently with the past couple albums because we've done more work in the studio for some of them but um for the most part it's always like we knew what it was going to be before we got to the studio like we were set on the arrangement, the, the melodies, you know, it's always one thing to hear it in a really good quality and like layered vocals and melodies and all these things and, and, and guitars sounding really good and drums sounding huge. So quality wise, I feel like the songs will sound better, but we've never been like, at least I can't remember anyway, I don't want to speak for them, but there hasn't been a time where I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I wasn't really into this song when we were writing it, but now I really like it. It's always been kind of like, we have the vision of the song beforehand or like, you know, at least I, I kind of feel that. Was it easy to pick the singles? I think so. Um, I think 
uh, I think we all knew that we wanted obituaries to be the first single. Um, I don't remember. I, I, I think that we made a mistake, a big mistake looking back and not making good things a single. Um, I don't necessarily remember the, why we didn't, you know, sometimes you just don't see songs as strong as they are when you're in the process of it. You know, I always thought that we were really good at that, but I think that we just thought of it as like, this is an opener song. We can't make it a single, but I think that the song was really, really strong and, uh, could have been a great, like one of the first lead singles or something. But anyways, it's, it, it's, it's just a funny thing. Cause like now I feel like we would, we would know immediately like, Oh, good things. What a banger. And like, how do you not make that a single? Um, but you know, at the time, I guess we weren't, we weren't, we were thinking of the song differently, but yeah, obituaries. I remember we immediately wanted, um, I think we did nice things, nice things we did for the video. That was, you know, I think that one was pretty fairly common. And I, I think yeah, Gates w- was the final oh, one Gates. in that site. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If I so remember, I remember back Gates to that time correctly. Yeah, it was Gates because I think we wanted to showcase that the album wasn't, um, you know, there was there was different elements to the album than say songs that kind of had a Chamberlain Waits feel. Maybe if you would say that like nice things and uh, obituaries were kind of like, you know, us growing into us growing into something. But Gates was was kind of new for us at the time, so we wanted to showcase that. And it's I think it was one of the strongest songs in the album too. Yeah, I I found for me personally because you know I was already very excited by the time before this record, but by the time it comes out, just looking at the track listing right now, I can almost watch, I can almost go through it and watch how this record has evolved for me as a fan on the outside. Like, oh, that's awesome. Like something like, did you think, man, when you guys play Casey live, it it goes yeah. bonkers. Yeah. Like, whereas you know from the album position, you know there's there's kind of like among the band world of like, you know, that back three quarters is maybe where you tuck away certain songs. But Casey and I can't seem to tell might be my two favorite tracks at this point on the record versus when I first started listening to it. Right. It was, you know, you just start it from the top because you're like, boom, I'm going to bang one after another. Yeah, that it's interesting you say that, because I think as a band as a whole, well, I know like Eric's I would say that one of Eric always one of his favorites is I can't seem to tell uh, baseline um, and is I, I wild in that song. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so it's fucking sick. Um, but I know that Eric and Joe, I think it was Joe, um, were really big proponents of that song. That was one of their favorites on the whole album. Um, for me, I always, I loved Casey. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if like the rhythm section loved it as much because it's such a lyrical heavy song. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, this is a great song obviously, but you know, I can't seem to tell is, is such a rhythmic feel to it. So, um, I, I, I always loved Casey. I thought it was, it was, it was going to be a huge song for us. Um, but it was funny because Brennan Kelly said something that he was, he was trying to get us to cut that song from the album. <laughs> he talked about he thought, that on your, on this yeah. podcast. I was like, that's so, <laughs> and he, he fully now accepts that he was completely wrong, but at the time <laughs> he was like, ah, oh, this song sucks. <laughs> yeah. And see that really fucked with me that because I, I had it in the back of my head that I think this song is going to be a sleeper hit. We're going to put it kind of in the back half of the album. And I think like, it'll be a fan favorite and we're not going to make it a single, but it'll be something that people come back to. And then when he initially said that I became really, really skeptical and scared. Cause I was like, okay, I really, I really went for it in that song lyrically. And if it sucks, it's like, I, it's, 
there's some songs that are allowed to suck, but that one was just not allowed to suck <laughs> lyrically, you know, because then you kind of look like a jackass. So I was I was kind of nervous on that. But then, you know, thankfully he was wrong and we were right. The song was successful and people love it. <laughs> Specifically, Casey, we wanted to write as a, as like a single kind of song. We were really excited about how it had come out. Uh, Greg was super excited about the, the, the story he was telling and the message he was sending. And we uh, started to work on all kinds of different versions of it as far as how the vibe of the song was going to be. There was one that started out with the old uh, uh, like 16s on the hi-hat over to the, it was like, like a shuffle. That was the one the version that we had first. Yeah, the, the Joe Godino <laughs> shuffle. Uh, we started with that and we were really excited and then it kind of morphed into a more open rock song. Um, I, I wrote the riff in the studio. I couldn't figure out what exactly we were going to play there. So that little guitar ditty that goes over it was written on Chris McCoggin's guitar, actually. They, he was so kind to let us borrow because like my guitar was not gold up to top. recording standards. Yeah, the gold top. It was nice. pretty fucking cool. And uh, yeah, we recorded all the guitars on that record with a Black Star amp as well. I forget exactly which one it was, but it was really funny that we ended up just getting all the different tones with it. But yeah, so the, the song Casey in, in particular, a lot of people did weren't turned on by it at first, and a lot of people were like, hey, maybe you don't want to put this one on the record, like that kind of shit. And we were like, I don't know, we really like this one. And it is funny in that the people who like it isn't necessarily everybody. I'm, you know, all of our fans really like it, but the people who like that song really like that oh, song. Yeah. So they were always screaming it in between songs and getting really excited. And yeah, it, uh, it, it that you know that's how that kind of shaped out. And that was one of the ones that was not a surprise for us, but I think it was a surprise for a lot of people. I wanted to ask you specifically, uh, what what was Ava House? Ava House was a open concept apartment above a garage in South Philly at 7th and Mifflin that a couple of kids from Scranton and Philly lived in, mostly I think just mostly kids from Scranton, who met and moved in there together and we would have shows there and they would put on shows that were kind of the bigger house shows that anyone you know has ever put on. It was really insane. It was the, one of the most debaucherous and positive and crazy experiences ever. It was I always uh, kind of say that it was allowed to happen because of the housing crisis had hit the world uh, by 2010. But in 2008, when we moved to, to, to Philly is when it went to the thick of it right in the fall there. And then in 2009, 2008, 2009, 2010, Ava House existed it, because of that lack of you know, because of that recession, we weren't able to necessarily go to bars, go to venues, buy tickets. The The infrastructure didn't exist for us to have these kind of shows, but they were just basically giant house parties. And we were all college age, so this kind of makes sense that we were doing what everybody else was doing while they were in college. And we would charge, you know, a sliding scale or whatever at the door, and you would go and see bands. Touring bands would come, and they would stay there. And, yeah, the kids who lived there loved them all the death, still hang out with, with basically all of them. And they had all kinds of crazy shit that happened there. But yeah, that was a, a definitely a meeting place for a lot of bands that came through. It was really a special special time and a special place. Is this the spot in the Irish Goodbyes video? This is. So okay. We have a video okay. for Irish Goodbyes, and the entire thing was shot in Ava House. And as you can see, like, there's like they're all spray painting shit in the background, <laughs> and there's like a giant broken mattress. And, yeah. Yeah. It's really fucking cool. 
So that that kind of period in between when you know the the records are getting pressed, it's it's finished. You've kind of heard it. You know what you have on your hands, but it hasn't come out yet. What did the reaction exceed expectations? You know, it was. It's I don't know. It's crazy. I have such a fond memory of walking. You know, wait, now I'm getting my, 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 it's so long ago. You start getting stuff. I was still in college by the time it was finished, I believe. Maybe I wasn't. I don't, I don't know what it was, but either way, I would walk to the subway every morning for whatever, for whatever reason I was walking to the subway every morning and I listened to the album and it was the first time ever that I just could not stop listening to it. And it's, you know, I was, when we did other albums in the past, you go through phases of like, oh, I love this. It's so it's all you want to listen to. But, you know, you're like, okay, it's my band. I'll go listen to something else now. But with, with, with On the Impossible Past, it was just so, I just felt different. Like, it just felt like all we had like magic in a bottle here. And it, I, I remember that feeling really, really well. And I didn't want to, get too excited of like, wow, this is really going to catch on. You know, we're going to, we're going to be a full-time band, but just listening to those songs, I was like, this just feels really, really cool. And I was just so proud of the album. Um, and I remember there's a lot of anticipation to get the album out. Um, around that time, albums would leak all the time. So we wanted our friends to hear it most importantly, but we were also really, really afraid to give it out. Cause yeah, things, it, things just leaked like crazy. Um, and we had a pretty long run, I, I think. We well, no, I guess we finished in September, and then we put it out in um, February. So basically, the album comes out, it hits. You guys are going hard now. What what changed uh, for you, kind of lifestyle wise, both on and off tour? I imagine you guys had to kind of get more efficient while also expanding the crew and and just how you did things. Yeah, that was that was kind of a really big wake up call for us because we prior to this, we were a very scrappy punk band. And, you know, I'm looking back at on after releasing on the impossible past and we were definitely even more of a We were just as scrappy then. But for us, it was like we have to get we have to get our shit together, basically. Um, and you know, it means taking sound checks seriously. You know, it means like getting there at load in time before then it was like, eh, if we're late, we're late. Who cares? You know, we'll skip sound check. <laughs> but now we're like, it's like, Hey, like people are actually want to pay money to see us. You're, you're not just like begging your friends in town to come see us. It was like, this is a, a completely different thing when you're charging people to come see your band in a foreign city. Like, let's take it seriously. Let's get a trailer. Like, all of a sudden now we're carrying merch and we can't, you know, before we just had a van, um, we would throw everything in it. But now like we were selling so much merch, we had to get a trailer to, you know, put our gear and and the merch in now. So that changed. Then, you know, we wanted to make sure that we got a front of house. Well, okay. I'll back up a sec here. Everything, everything went crazy. I totally forgot about this, but when the first tour that we did was, rise and a rise against arena tour. Uh, so this is, so things went from like, yeah, like before then we, we opened up for a gaslight anthem, which was massive, but you know, we, they, we knew them before. So it was different. Like this was, this just felt like it was like, wow, we are so out of our element here. You know, this was, they got semis and multiple tour buses showing up to this arena and, 
you know, we have a van with no trailer. Like <laughs> we got to get, we got to get together here. So that's when, you know, our friend uh, Dave March, who does sound for us at the time, he came over and he was just like, I've never worked on rigs this big. I'll just do monitors for the guys and rise against. We're just like, no, like, dude, this is your moment, man. Like step up and do front of house. So we were like, can you do it? He's like, I guess I'm going to try now. <laughs> so, you know, that's like, we were just thrown into the situation of like, okay, we need to learn to adapt and, and like, um, you know, there might be big tour offers that come up all the time. So you want to be the band that those those rise you want rise against to leave and go. They were awesome to tour with. I would recommend it. And you don't want to be the band that's like, oh, they were problems. They weren't ready for this. Like, uh, I wouldn't recommend them. So we were very much we wanted to have a good um, a good resume uh, when it came to that. So, yeah, we, we started, you know, things just got real quick. <laughs> And then slowly since then, we've built our crew up, and now we have uh, uh, our uh, Tyler, who drives us. Jesus does merch. We've got Nick does guitar text. Danielle does merch sometimes. Andy comes sometimes. And uh, Dave still is our, our front house engineer. And, yeah, we kind of have built a – in this last tour that we did, we brought uh, – Paul Siebert did lights for us. So we had um, – you know, we started – they outnumber us now. So <laughs> all the jokes of, like, doing band versus crew competitive stuff, like ba basketball games and shit. You know, you got to watch out. I'd say On the Impossible Pass is, is definitely the fan favorite. Do you have your own kind of uh, rank your children type thing going on? Like, do you have a, a spot you would put it in, in your favorite Menzingers uh, of the discography? Personal ranking is, is tough because I probably would have said it rendered world for a while. Um, but I'm, I'm so proud of them in such different ways. Uh, yeah, it's tough. And there's always that thing too, where like your favorite album is the one you've just most recently done because it's like still fresh. Um, and this last album isn't, I don't know that it's been out long enough or we've played it long enough to really know where it kind of fits. But, um, but I'd probably say impossible pass is probably in the, the middle of the top somewhere. Like say, you know, there's what, six albums. Um, I'd say it's probably, in like third for me or something you know i don't know maybe it's like in the middle i don't know it's hard to say but um at this point i want to say maybe after the party could be at the top um and then maybe oh now see this is so tricky because now i'm like trying to like figure out I'll just give you a solid answer that Impossible Pass is probably middle to top somewhere, if there can be upper, uh, upper middle, middle top. Yeah. Upper middle, yeah, that's a good way to put it, yeah. I really like our newest record, but I think that I would pick After the Party is my favorite because it's the one that we, if I was going to rank it, it's my favorite because of uh, what we went through while we were writing and recording it, what we kind of decided that we were going to do. It also is the record that is launched us into where we are now. So, the uh, on the impossible past is is definitely a fan favorite. You know, it's not the majority of our fans' favorites, though. I don't think it would be. That would probably be after the party, as far as as far as the, the crowd response goes and the um, size of our shows when they changed was that record. So that was when everything kind of really blew up for us. So the 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 first initial latching of of the the taste of like what it could be like to be in a, a successful band was on the impossible past that was when we were able to be able to tour full time and people started really coming to our shows and we got a lot of really cool press from that that a lot of people really rooted for us and i think that was a really big part of that and a really big deal but when we put out after the party was when things kind of just tripled um 
it, which uh, which that's not the main reason why I really like it. I really like it because I we went in with that one thinking we're going to write a song full, that would be the ultimate bar. Ju- we're going to sorry, we're going to write an album that would be the ultimate bar jukebox. And we kind of just carried that through and it made it so much fun to write it with that mentality, uh, with that guideline in place. So we got to like when you would check something when we were writing it, we're like, all right, would this be great on a jukebox at our favorite dive bar? And if the answer was no, then we didn't keep going. <laughs> so it was, uh, that was uh, one of my favorites. Or that is my current favorite. Because uh, I, I remember that that time specifically, a lot of the press kind of uh, was running with almost like um, almost like a redemption narrative. It was like, oh, On the Impossible Pass came out. They were high. Rented World were like, oh, some of the press like, oh, it didn't, didn't – didn't deliver like they thought, and then there was like they were back, which I, yeah. <laughs> I don't agree with that narrative at all. But I, I definitely see. It's interesting if you think of shuffling. If it went on the Impossible Pass after the party rented world, that makes more sense to me linearly. But I also then don't think you get to after the party without rented world in between. Because I think rented world you, you got some new tools in the bag, and then after the party seems to be like. Here's the best of what we did on the last two, and we're gonna make it even better. Totally, I think it's a that's a, you just summed it up a great way. Yeah, and it is funny that the the kind of press or comment section narrative that yeah, exists because yeah. you realize that somebody has to tell the story or somebody's going to tell the story of 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 whatever it is. So they're gonna control the narrative, and even though that it might not necessarily be reflected in our lives or in what we're doing or in what our fans think of our music or in what, what our shows are like, it's still there. So that kind of like vibe just exists. Like the idea of the, the, the after the party is like a return to where we were and that kind of stuff. It's, it's funny for, for me to listen to that. Cause I'm like, well, I guess you could say that as far, if you, the only thing that you saw of our life and our creative world was the, uh, the releases of the records and yeah, I guess that makes sense, but it's just funny to kind of look at it. Yeah, for sure. Did you now, Obviously, that was another level. How closely do you personally monitor press and stuff like that? Or are you kind of just judging? Is your main judgment on shows and stuff like that turn out like, hey, how are we doing as a band? Or do you, do you read the stories, stuff like that? Or are you just kind of the reviews specifically, I guess it would be? I actually I don't. Um if sometimes someone will send me one that they're excited about, or if it's in like a bigger publication or something that gets me really excited. Like when we had our photograph, uh, of our live show for the, actually it was for the, um, uh, Oh my God, my mind is, is, is breaking for, for the release of, um, uh, on the impossible past. I believe we played a, a house show at golden tea house and the photo of it was in the New York times. Like that's a pretty big oh, fucking yes. deal for me. That's yeah, yeah. so cool. Um, things like that are really cool. And there's some writers that are really cool. And I like doing interviews a lot, um, especially when the questions are, are, are well thought out and interesting and the person's cool to engage with. So I do enjoy doing that and knowing that people will read it and get an insight into our band and who we are and our, and our music specifically and what it's like to tour. And, you know, and it's flattering. Somebody wants your attention. They think you're important enough to be, to want to talk to you. That's really fucking cool. But as far as the reviews and stuff, I don't really read them. Um, uh, I've seen some of the like ratings and star ratings and stuff like that, and that's cool. But so I, I actually I do look at Reddit once in a while. I'll search our band name on Reddit and then see what pops up, and it's kind of cool to see what people have to say there, and they'll they'll link to that kind of shit. But we just had a couple of reviews in a row that were so. Mm, some of them are negative, some of them are mediocre, some of them are good. But just reading them, uh, it, it's just kind of, it's bizarre first 
and it's also sometimes just nonsensical. Sometimes it just seems like the person didn't even listen to the record. Um, <laughs> so, and then the last thing I need is to, to not feel uh, good about it because of what someone said, you know, if they're like, talking shit or something. Back then, I probably did more like Impossible Past Days just because everything was so new and exciting and like, oh, this website wants to review the album. Like, this is going to be so cool, you know? And so probably more so then. Um, these days, I try not to. Um, I remember, uh, with, after the party, like NPR did a thing. And so I like listened to that because I was so excited because it was like, Oh wow. Like NPR, like did this album thing. So it, it maybe depends on the outlet of who's doing it, but overall, um, no, it's, I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> How much, uh, kind of auxiliary pressure do you feel versus how much pressure at this point, are you putting on yourself to follow up uh, the record with with Rented World? There was there, from if I can just I, I can't speak for everybody, but I can speak for myself. The, the the biggest pressure was to to pump out another album quickly. That I felt like was I knew that we were gonna write a great album, uh, but I was really afraid. I was really afraid of having so much momentum and then losing it and waiting too long to put out another record. And we kind of just, you know, it's like the whole special thing that's happening is forgotten about. So the, what was really difficult was that we were now a full-time touring band. We were able to make a living off of it, but that meant that we had to be on tour all the time and we couldn't write. So it was really, really difficult for us to have to block off time to write um, rented world. Uh, but we knew that we had to, you know, so it was it was tricky where, you know, you get a good tour offer and you'd have to turn it down so you can just be at home writing. And it just felt weird. Um, but, you know, it was it was the only way the album was going to get done. So that that was like the most mentally challenging thing. Um, and it, we were trying to decide what kind of band we wanted to be, you know, like like we were saying with this whole podcast, we that on the Impossible Past was kind of our the album that changed everything for us. Um, I think when we went into write rented world, we were like, let's we did we just didn't want to be just a a scrappy DIY punk band, you know. We didn't we we kind of had larger dreams. We wanted to write you know bigger songs, um, bigger rock songs, um, and not I don't know. I guess kind of try something new, you know. Yeah, I mean, definitely be lying if I said there was never any sort of pressure like that. Um, I think after Impossible Past was the first time that we I personally ever felt that. Um, I think as a band we probably did too, but I specifically remember that. You know that that album before that album it was just like we were having fun. People liked the songs, but it, it was very much like in a contained scene, and we were playing with a lot of bands that we were friends with, and it was all just kind of like no pressure, fun, communal kind of vibe and. And, you know, after getting on certain tours and, and getting on bigger tours with, with some bigger bands and stuff, like, and people, you know, kind of attaching to those songs, it was like, oh, wow, like, all right, now people are listening. Like, we got to, you know, it, you know, it, it's, it's weird to think, but like, you, it does come through your head, like, where you're just like, well, I wonder what people want to hear, you know? But I can't at the same time honestly say that we've never, um, We've never let it get to us too much. You know, of course that thought's going to be there. Um, and I think people are, it would, 
they're probably lying if they said it's not. You're always thinking about it in some degree. Um, but uh, it's a matter of if it gets to you or not and it starts to dictate how you're writing, you know, and then then that's a bigger issue. And, and sometimes there's nothing wrong with just completely catering to people, I guess, if you're that kind of musician or whatever. But uh, for us, it was never like, I think we're really good at always keeping each other in check too. So even if the pressure's there, it's always about like, what do we want to hear here? Like, what would you want to hear if this song was by a band that you liked, you know, and what, like, what do you want to hear come out of this song? And so I think that we've always, I've always anyway, just tried to keep that in the back of my head. Like who cares what people want to hear? Because if we like it and we're having fun doing it, then, um, you know, that really as cliche as it sounds, it really does mean more than, than anything else. And, and, you know, what the hell are we doing if we're not making ourselves happy? You know? It all depends on what kind of pressure we're talking about. There's definitely the idea that the fear that people aren't going to like the songs that we write, that's kind of one type of pressure, but that itself is just a little bit, I'm not sure exactly where that comes from. If that comes from like a deep, um, insecurity of some kind or like an imposter syndrome or the subconscious trying to drag you wherever. But that's certainly one of the big pressures. And then one of the other pressures is that you're just going to run out of time. But then if you take a step back and look at it, we just, we set it up so that we're not going to fail um, in that we set the time to record. We get ready. We know we're going to be, we keep each other accountable. Um, so yeah, those pressures definitely exist. And because in 2012, um, after On the Impossible Pass came out, that was the year that we were able to pay our rent. We all lived together in the same house. We were able to pay our rent and uh, you know, live our lives off of the band. So we had some supplemental income and shit like that, but nobody had to go to a full-time job when we got home. So that, that was the pressure was there as well. It was like, well, if we fuck off, the money stops coming and you can't, um, you know, you're going to have to scramble and sell shit or whatever the fuck. So yeah, those pressures definitely existed. Those life pressures, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I say like big kids, big problems. I guess that's kind of in the same, the same realm. Did you guys have any, uh, kind of bands around you, maybe bands that have been around the block a few times? You talked about rise against, but any other bands kind of guiding you or, or helping you at this time? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, Gaslight Anthem were, were our buds. We would play um, basement shows with them like when we both first started off. Um, and, uh, you know, they were a good one around. Obviously, Lawrence Arms, uh, Brendan was such a such a huge figure for us. Um, and the Bouncing Souls, that was another band that we just looked up to immensely and, and helped us navigate it. Uh, their manager, Kate Hilt. Um, you know, was always down to chat about strategic things and just like, you know, what to do and, and help and things like that. And just navigate this, the music industry really. Um, yeah. So those bands were, they were, they were pretty huge, you know? Um, and then within the scene too, the Philly scene, um, the painted black guys, like that's when the band started doing pretty well. And, uh, Andy, would book book for our five and he kind of, you know, we would just have great chats with him and, uh, kind of, you know, just show us how it's done. It's like, you kind of take it. They really did just take us under their wing and be like, you know, you guys are good kids. Just keep your heads on straight and, uh, go for it. Really. 
Yeah, uh, there's bands that are our age that we've we've really just kind of you know toured with 900 million times, like uh, the Flatliners and Sidekicks, two examples that that you had mentioned. So touring with them, uh, touring with um, La Dispute and Touche Amore, a lot of people that are in kind of the same close boat as us was was really cool to kind of talk to each other and experience these things together and figure out ways to handle it the best. Because I mean, it's fucking awesome. It's great. It's so much fun. Um, and, and being able to develop those same kind of relationships and know when you have this shared experience with somebody, they're kind of the only other person that in the world that you can talk to about it or that you can commiserate with it because they, it's a very unique experience and it's really cool to be able to do that. Um, as far as bands that we look up to bouncing souls have just been so incredible and powerful in that regard. That has been, yeah, they, they, they're just the greatest mentors, hot water music we've toured with several times. Um, Rise Against were really cool. And not only are these bands really cool and helped us kind of go like walk in their footsteps a bit, but their crew. So the people who work with and for them, their tour managers and uh, all these people are the same people that run festivals uh, regionally. They're the same people that are on tour with random bands that you run into. Um, so they are always there to watch out for you and your crew. And it's it's a really a very cool community. And that's been extremely helpful. People like Mike Fry and Nelty and and, and Kate and everybody have been just so awesome to, to learn from. When you look back, do you have a personal highlight when you think of On the Impossible Pass, one specific, whether it's a tour or a moment or someone giving you a shout-out on the record that, that really stands out for you? I mean, honestly, when I think of that album, the first thing that comes to my mind is writing that album and writing it in in where we did, like in, in Lake Ariel, like when we were – um, kind of in the mountains there. And to me, so I don't know if this answers your question exactly, but it's, to me, that's what always sticks out. And that was like the most fun I think we've ever had. And I I look back at it with a lot of nostalgia and stuff because it was just like, there was no better setting to just be for like a few weeks in the summer, just writing an album and also just being, you know, the age we were and just like, uh, everything was just like, it was just fun. And I, and I, I want to say that it was probably the most like carefree that we've ever written an album. You know, we just, we just had, we really just had fun. I remember at the end of it, we were like, shit, we need another song and like wrote another song, like on the spot. Cause we were just in the zone writing songs. We were having so much fun and we were just kind of cranking them out, you know? And uh, so that's honestly what comes to mind when I think of that is, is just that time frame. Um, it was just so much fun. I think we were at a rest stop in one of the flat states. So maybe we were in Oklahoma, in our way out of Texas, I believe. And I got a call from the guy from Rock Sound doing an interview in like half, which is a, a big publication in the, in the UK. And it was like three quarters of the way through the interview. He's like, they did tell you why I'm interviewing you, right? And I was like, no, why? And he's like, we're giving you the uh, number one record of, of, of 2012. And I was like, holy shit, that's fucking crazy. And I remember being so shocked and like, uh, confused about that. Um, and excited that when you mentioned, what is there one kind of thing that stood out that, that moment, I remember that very specifically, that really kind of just blasted into me. You know, there's so many, there's so many amazing moments of like milestones that, that come, that came with this album. Um, one in particular for me was, the the first show on the on the impossible pass tour we started the show the tour in pittsburgh and um we were we were kind of nervous you know we were like we knew the album people were excited about it but 
it was an album that was out for a month or two. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get people into new stuff immediately, you know, like, um, we're like, okay, well, let's just, what do you guys want to open with? And that was the debate. Like, should we open up with like a song that everybody knows? Like I was born, you know, we've been torn on Chamberlain waits for years. Pittsburgh is a great city for us. Or should we try something new? You want to open up with good things and just see what happens. And I think it was Joe that was just like, dude, we got to open up with a new song. Like, come on, let's do it. Let's just go for it. If it goes weird, whatever, we blast into an old song after that. And the reaction, like we we played this DIY art space and the reaction to good things for the first time was insane. And it was like the coolest moment where all, we all just kind of looked at each other and we're like, oh my God, people... Not only do they love this, but they like really love it. It just felt so special. And uh, singing that song, like we played it live beforehand, maybe once or twice, but no one knew it really. So this was the first time that people knew songs from On the Impossible Past. And it, yeah, it was at that show. And it just felt that first, you know, Joe Joe doing the stick clicks into it. And uh, it was just so amazing, like just seeing everybody immediately stage dive, rip the place apart. We we're like, what? <laughs> So when this cycle wraps up, uh, you obviously toured like mad. Was it basically how much of the decision that you could be close to home, how much did you weigh that when deciding to go to Minor Street for, for Rented World? I think it was pretty big. I think that was a big thing. I think we were we were feeling a lot of pride for what was happening in the Philly music scene. Um, and to be completely honest, I think we wanted to be a part of it more. Um, there was, you know, the studio, we were, we, we met with John Lowe and he, we, you know, hit it off and he was interested in doing the album. Our friends restorations, um, you know, worked with him and we would, we would all hang out. And I think there was an element of that, you know, we're a Philly band, but in a way like, we're, you know, we, we wanted more of a connection with where we were from and we wanted to be a part of everything that was really, you know, really amazing that was going on. And, and, uh, you know, the staying home part was huge too. Um, we all, uh, you know, wanted a bit more of that domestic life. We were all kind of craving it of just, you know, it's weird how you, you tell somebody that goes to work every single day and comes home that you're like, Oh, I would love to go on tour. But then when you tour all the time, you're like, I would love to just go to a job from nine to five and then come home and make dinner, you know, with your partner or something like that. All of a sudden that became like a thing where we were like, what if we could just go do it like a job? We're like, come on, stop it. You know, It's funny, funny, like the way you start thinking that way. But I think there was an element of, of, of that where we, we wanted to be a part of everything that was happening in Philly, but we also wanted a bit of normalcy to just like slow down and, uh, you know, enjoy the life that we were having in Philly. Like, you know, we love Matt to death and it was a difficult decision not to go back to him for the next record. Uh, but he was just super cool about it. He's really awesome. Um, really understanding and, and, and really cool and friends first. And he was very professional as well. And we went with John Lowe, somebody who was our age. We were really excited to kind of like experiment with some of the live recording and, uh, to the tape and to get a little bit of what we were calling at the time, a darker sound. I think it was more, we were going for, and it ended up being a darker sound in the sense that there's a little bit different guitar kind of work. It was a little bit bigger, a little bit darker choices of chords. Uh, the bass and drums were recorded live together to tape for the most part. And that was a really cool and unique experience. We used a um, the old Roland uh, tape echo machine. Yeah, big, uh, big, all the big green one, the big yeah, tape the echo. Space echo. Uh, space echo, rules, yeah. yeah. 
is so cool. The preamps on it sounded great. We used a whole bunch of uh, the warping tape uh, on the vocals, on the guitars that are kind of layered in the background, and we got a little bit more into a, a wider sonic, uh, less um, traditional approach with John, which was which was really cool. And that's what we wanted to do when we went there. So it was uh, definitely something that he brought to the table. Huge. What was what what was different? What was going through your mind when you're trying to follow up a, a, a record that's so beloved? And it would be the easy approach to kind of just write, you know, on the impossible pass 2.0 and, and keep the train rolling. Yeah. So we I think part of it was a reversion against that, like a small, not almost adolescent idea of like, well, fuck that. That's what everybody wanted us to do. Um, it was difficult to follow it up in the sense that there was a lot of pressure to make it good. You know, we were like, all right, well, if this comes out, everybody hates it. Uh, you know, what are we just a, like a one album kind of deal here? Um, yeah. So that was a, definitely some pressure that existed there. There's what was going on in our lives. There was some more change as well. Things were getting a little bit more serious as we get older in this world in particular. People start, you know, you start seeing your friends go down. You start seeing um, all kinds of negative things that happen as well as the positive but reality kind of starts to hit you in the face things get a little bit more serious we also i think that one of the reasons that the record got a little bit darker and i stand by this is that um we were in an uncomfortable writing and practice situation so we had to i mean looking back on it, i remember all the fun parts but i remember at the time it got a little bit stressful we were in a building up on castor ave uh, further up in 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 past or uh, up in north philly kind of where we were in a rehearsal studio that was shared with a lot of hardcore metal bands. So, and it was really loud and the, the, it was not temperature well, the, uh, regulated well. The room was very small. We really slammed together. It was extremely loud. And I think that all of that other music that was going on the entire time we were practicing kind of sent that, that vibe and that energy through us. And we kind of, uh, uh pulled, like, you know, pulled from some of it. Definitely the, the vibes ended up on the record as much as, on the impossible pass was this huge transition. I feel like rented world equally is kind of as interesting when you look at after the party and, and on the impossible pass on each end of it. I think it makes it a little bit more interesting and maybe, I don't know. How did you feel when, when rented world came out? Did it feel like you, you had the same boom? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just a completely different boom because like, I don't want to be an asshole, asshole anymore was such a massive single that like for, for us, like that was the first time we had a massive single, you know? So all of a sudden the song was like, the song was getting shared everywhere in like weird places. Like we'd go, we went to the serious XM um, office and like the, the, the hip hop dude was just like, dude, I saw the music video. It was amazing. I shared it to everybody in the hip hop department. And we're like, wait, what? You know, like all of a sudden the music video and the song just became like really, really massive. So all these people were finding the band because of that single where, you know, on the impossible past, it felt like such an album. Um, you know, the, the overall album is what people like look back on, you know, like kind of like we were talking about earlier of, of having, Oh, this was my favorite song or this, you know, like everybody kind of has different things that they love about on the impossible past, but for rented world, it was almost like the singles were, were really, really strong. And, Maybe that's just how I frame that album in my mind. But, um, you know, it, we definitely had such a huge jump where now, you know, we never dreamed that we would be able to sell out an 1100 cap club. And we did that in Philly on Rented World. And that was that was like huge, you know, like that was just so massive for us. We couldn't even fathom that. Like um, so that all happened on the on Rented World. And uh, 
you know, that was, yeah, so that was really, really crazy. But it's, it's, it is, you're like, it's interesting you say it though about the, um, about wanting to do that album as like more of a, a story. It, it, it's, there's something about it where it's in a weird way, it's kind of the oddball one out, especially being sandwiched, right? It yeah, doesn't it's, fit. It's, it it's doesn't like, fit. Yeah, on the impossible past. And then you have after the party, which, feels like you know very congruent like there's like growth but it's you know then we had rented world that that really pops out um in in a weird way and you know i think i think as as time moves on our fans are are liking that album a lot more than maybe they initially did where they're like ah this isn't on the impossible pass like ah what the hell but as time goes on people are like no that that album rules and i'm like oh damn all right thanks <laughs> I, I think of it the same way now when i look back on like greatest story ever told where you mm-hmm. know you you have apathy and exhaustion you have the compilation record before that and then you have this weird one that when it came out people were not stoked on and mm-hmm. then Oh Calcutta comes after. And then it's like you have it's almost like you guys did what they did. It seems like you almost stepped outside for one album, did it. Yeah. And then stepped back in to a certain lane. But so it it maybe doesn't make sense with the rest of the discography if you're looking for a linear kind of thing. But I think it mm-hmm. really showed a lot of stronger songwriting aspects that weren't as highlighted on other records when you guys are going for it. That's yeah, that's awesome you say that. I, I I agree. Um, yeah, that that album is is an interesting one, and I'm really glad we were able to write it because I I we definitely wouldn't have been able to write after the party. Um, because we learned a lot with Rented World. We we tried a lot of new things. Um, I think when I look back on Rented World, it's a lot darker of an album, and it's a lot more rock oriented of an album. Um, it's also a lot more raw. You know, they recorded the bass and Eric and Joe recorded the bass and drums live. Um, you know, the, the vocals are done a a lot quicker. Uh, you know, we, I don't think we, we wanted, we wanted to, to make it feel like our live set really, you know, we wanted, we wanted the kind of Steve Albini approach. And I remember talking to John Lowe about it, of being like, you know, let's not, let's not overdo it with stuff. Let's, let's just make it sound like how we sound. Um, and he was like perfect for that. And he was, you know, he's such a, it was such a fun experience doing it. But yeah, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's an interesting album. So basically for, for people listening, I, I talked to Joe and Tom well before, uh, in, in kind of the spring of 2020, I'm talking to you, Greg, now in the spring of 2021, since then you guys have started the Patreon, uh, where people can kind of get, uh, whatever kind of extra content, different tiers, basically, uh, what, what inspired you guys to make that move specifically after it looked like, Hey, maybe touring's not on the table for a little longer than we thought. Yeah. I mean, basically we wanted a way to be able to connect with fans again. Um, and we wanted the band to stay active during this time. You know, it's been difficult not being able to be around every like the four of us being able to be in the same room, you know, guidelines change. There's, you know, some people are comfortable with certain things, some aren't. So it's like, you got to respect everybody's, uh, you know, space and, and, um, and their, and their health and be careful with all that. So, you know, we haven't been able to, what we typically do, the four of us get in a room and write music together. Um, we had written from exile last year, uh, that was doing it, you know, all in our own little home studios. Uh, and that, that was an amazing experience, but 
you know, we, we didn't, we don't want to write an album that way. You know, we need to be in the same room together playing music. Like, um, that's, it just didn't feel like that was going to be the way that we're going to write the next album. So we are like, what can we do? And, uh, you know, Tom is a big lover of Patreon. He subscribes to a bunch and he's been pushing for a while now for us to do it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like an old man when it comes to like new computer things, like tech, like internet things. So I was like, wait, what are we talking about? What's this Patreon thing? So, uh, you know, I kind of got around to it and I was like, oh shit, this is actually a really cool idea. And, uh, yeah, so it's just been a really cool thing for us to be able to do, um, where we want to stay active with the band. Um, we want to stay, you know, stay with the, close to our fan base, but you know, we're not able to play shows. We're not able to, you know, I guess now that everybody's getting vaccinated, we're going to start uh, being able to hang out and, and write music again. But, you know, it's just been it's been tough. It's been really, really hard having this break after not having one for 15 years. So yeah, the Patreon has kind of glued it all back together a bit. You know, I'm a fan of bands and they and I'm a fan of many bands, I should say, that just can't afford to be a band, you know, it's, it's very difficult to the amount of time and energy that goes into it when you have to work jobs and you have multiple people scheduling and real life gets in the way and that sucks. And the way that the music industry is set up, it's very, very hard for young bands to just really be able to go for it financially and make it, you know, it's, it's easier for the, the, the massive bands to stay afloat. But when you're first starting out and you're playing for 50 kids in a city, like that's, that's really difficult. So it's really cool that things like this are able to come around because I wish, I wish that was around, you know, for a lot of bands that I loved that I was able to, 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 to pay, to be like, Hey, the, the things you create mean a lot to me. And, uh, you know, they make my life better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I need this in my life and I hope you know that, and I hope you're able to continue to do it. And I, I just hope that as time goes on, um, fans are able to support the arts that 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 they love. That means a lot to them because I know it means a lot to be able to buy a concert ticket and to buy a T-shirt like you, you feel, you know, you're like one. I got to experience that, but also like, I'm glad I'm able to support this thing that I really like. I that's at least how I feel. So I, you know, I, I hope there's these avenues where you're able to the money doesn't get caught up in a million different hands before it gets to the to the artist. Thanks so much for sticking around. I know that was a bit of a longer one, but I think we really covered a lot of ground with that. Uh, where Greg left off there, he was talking about the Menzinger's Patreon. If you're not a Patreon user, I definitely encourage you to try it out. I follow a few accounts on there, and they have all been well, well worth the money. There's nothing I love more than being able to give money directly to the creators I enjoy. The Menzingers one specifically is by far one of the best band ones that I've ever subscribed to. And I'm not just saying that. Content-wise, it is just so far above what a lot of the other bands on the platform are doing. Uh, there's a little bit of half-assing it for sure from some other bands but hey I, I also don't mind that because I just don't mind a, a direct route to be able to just give bands monthly uh, any amount of money you see fit but the Menzingers ones you get rig run throughs you get song playthroughs you get acoustic versions uh, of different tracks 
you know, sometimes it'll be Greg singing a Tom song. Sometimes it's Tom singing a Greg song. You get tour diaries. You get a 15% discount code every month to their merch store. And you get first dibs on any vinyl releases that they come out with. There was a couple reissues earlier in the year. Look, if you're collecting Menzinger's LPs anyway, uh, you're going to pay exorbitant amounts on the secondary market. You will actually end up saving money by subscribing to this Patreon for a year versus what you will get gouged for on Discogs or something. I can't recommend it enough. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, it, it was a really pivotal record from the band, as you could hear, and I think there definitely was an opportunity uh, that this band could have cracked at some point. You know, around that rented world era, before, after the party, when maybe things weren't on the same, you know, canon trajectory that that on the Impossible Pass put them on. But I, I'm glad they kept rolling with it. I'm glad they kept creating music. Uh, because like I've said a million times, this is one of my favorite bands, one of my favorite albums, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Um, subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple, uh, all that stuff really helps. Rating and reviews help. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me, uh, there's a Twitter account, there's an Instagram account. Both their handles are that one record podcast. Uh, if you want to be more direct, that one record podcast at gmail.com. That's where I'll answer my emails. Um, I love all the suggestions I've been getting for episodes. Uh, I've tried a lot of them. It's real hard to get bands to respond to emails or to get through managers, but I'm working on it as best I can. Uh, thanks for sticking around, and hopefully see you in two weeks. <laughs>